Hello and welcome to Paleo Cinema Podcast 226. My name is Terry Frost and this time around I'm doing a couple of exploitation movies. One from the early 60s and one from the early 70s. The one from the early 60s comes to us from Something Weird video and it is Satan in High Heels starring Meg Miles and Grayson Hall. And then we zip pan to the 1970s for a movie which has a few different names. One of which is they call her One Eye. But the copy I have, which is the Synapse Films release, is Thriller, A Cruel Picture. And indeed, in several ways, it is a cruel picture. So take five, smoke them if you've got them, and I'll get the contact details out of the way before the show starts. The very first show of 2018. Paleo Cinema Podcast is a fortnightly podcast of movie appreciation. There's only one rule, and that is the movies have to be more than 20 years old, and I have to like them. I'm going to be looking at the history of the films, the social context in which the films were made, and relate that to the way movies are now. Feedback is very important, so you can leave reviews on iTunes. You can also go to feedbackpaleo at gmail.com and drop an email or a voicemail by mp3. Or you can go to the Paleo Cinema Cafe on Facebook. Now, please be aware that this podcast may contain adult language. So if you don't want to have to explain it to your kids, don't listen to it when the kids are around, unless you have incredibly hip children. Okay, so how is 2018 treating everybody? I know up in the Northern Hemisphere, it's pretty much turned into a an undefrosted refrigerator for the duration. And down here yesterday, we had uh, 42 degrees, which old school is about 108 Fahrenheit. And today it's down to about 22 degrees centigrade. So, yeah, we've lost 20 degrees <laughs> in a day. In fact, we lost it last night. Uh, it did get a bit warm around the place. We uh, pulled down the awning so that the direct sunlight wouldn't come in made sure the cats were okay, put the AC up to full, which takes it down about 10 degrees. And yeah, so um, that's what's been happening, weather and extreme weather conditions. I've actually been a pretty good boy this year so far, and I'm saying this when we're, what, seven days into the year. Um, I've been doing the exercise, so every second day what I do is I'll alternate days. The first day I went to the gym, And then I alternate by going and walking about a couple of kilometers on soft sand on the beaches around here. And that works really well because I get the cardio from the soft sand walk, which isn't easy, particularly when I go to Altona Beach because they rake the sand to get the rubbish off it every night. And so the sand is much finer than if it was just settling naturally. But I'm doing that. Uh, it's a good thing to do in the summertime. I'm going to be keeping it up in the winter as well. And on the alternate days, I go to the gym and do the weights. So I'm trying to um, increase my longevity and uh, also feel better about myself. So the exercise is happening. I'm also watching a shit ton of movies, which, of course, is something we all know and love. Uh, Sally and I had a very quiet news. We had a couple of invitations, but... Basically, um, couldn't be stuffed, and we had a few things. So we got in a bunch of seafood, a lot of prawns, and ate a lot of prawns, and just chilled out until midnight, and enjoyed, uh, you know, just hanging around at home, which we do a bit more than usual. Uh, we did go to a party on Friday night, though. Good friend of the podcast, Bruce Creevy, who has just finished a gig working for Animal Logic in Sydney, working on the special effects for the new Peter Rabbit movie. 
And um, so I'm going to get Bruce onto the podcast at some stage and we'll just talk his career and talk about what he knows and what he knows about the inside of the movie industry as it is in these days. So that's going to be a lot of fun. Bruce is a lovely person and he and his partner, Monette, hosted a really nice barbecue where we met a bunch of the other friends. I got to try uh, PlayStation VR and uh, they had a nice kind of car rally game to play. So I've got the headset on, I've got the steering wheel, I've got the uh, accelerate and brake pedals all set up on a little platform and I went immersive VR and loved it. Uh, Yeah, I I did rip the steering wheel loose from this um, bracket while I was driving, but I did pretty well. I got good at um, drifting the cars around and having a good time with it. So I did four laps of that. Sally did four laps of that. And we're looking at trying to find some kind of virtual reality rig that we can buy. But, yeah, I'm trying to be on cutting edge there. I can definitely see the possibilities for adult material. And there's a lot of... uh, money and effort and uh, research going into adult movie VR, but we didn't try that because the room was also full of teenagers. So, um, yeah, that was, that was a bit of fun, and we also got to talk a lot, talk movies with a bunch of people and, and things we like about movies, things we don't like about movies. Met a couple of people who hadn't seen Casablanca or Citizen Kane, but you can't see everything, particularly if you're not um, as matured as I am. But uh, I recommended it, and I told them why I recommended it and what kind of stuff they liked. Uh, I asked them what kind of stuff they liked. Yeah, um, nobody liked the Fast and Furious movies. They just said that they were animatics for computer games. But, yeah, I've seen all of the Fast and Furious movies, but I'm not particularly impressed with the franchise. So, anyway, um, yeah, we've been socialising and hanging out and, and doing stuff over the, the, the nice weather. We tend to not go places around victoria during the um during january and the christmas new year period mostly because they're full of dickheads they're full of drunken people who have had too much sun to they get sunburnt they walk across the road at random and there's a hell of a lot of them there so january is not a sweet spot for going anywhere interesting on a drive uh february yeah absolutely it's a bit hotter in feb but everybody's gone back to work so we can kind of hit some cool places and not have too many hassles with it so what we've done instead is we've watched movies first movie of the year was the john carpenter version of the thing uh we picked up a blu-ray of that and watched that with good old kurt russell and all the other guys in it um the one thing i noticed this time i like the movie uh, no arguments about that it's a nice good honest science fiction thriller but the thing i noticed is it doesn't look anything like antarctica where they are because they filmed it up near Juneau in alaska and the thing I know about Antarctica, and in fact I've had two friends visit Antarctica, is there's a thing called catabatic winds, which are the winds that come off the high plateau at the centre of Antarctica and blow ice and crystals everywhere all the time. There's not really much still weather in most parts of Antarctica. And what that does is it smooths out all the rocks. So right at the start of the thing, you see a whole bunch of people in the helicopter kind of travelling. No, it's a helicopter with a guy trying to shoot the dog. And you see it go past a whole bunch of jagged rocks and things like that, and it's, they're nothing like the rocks in Antarctica. There's nowhere in Antarctica where it looks like that. So that took me out of the movie a little bit. But apart from that, we enjoyed re-watching it. Love the Rob Bottin special effects with all the kind of Vaseline writhing rubber that comes as a part of that 
and it holds up well. I haven't seen the remake, this kind of prequel to it that came out a couple of years ago, but I really should try to find that and uh, hit that one up, and we'll watch that at some stage during the year. The second thing I watched is a kind of unusual and rare movie from the mid-60s. has two names. The first one is An American Dream because it's based on a Norman Mailer novel, and the other name it's got is See You in Hell, Darling. So it uh, stars Stuart Whitman, Janet Lee, and Eleanor Parker. And it's the story of a guy called Rojek, who's a kind of shock jock on television. He'd be the kind of guy to be on Fox News or CNN these days, uh, played by Stuart Whitman. And he's married to an alcoholic um, and promiscuous woman, played by Eleanor Parker, an actor who's really fantastic. If you haven't seen her in Caged, from the early 1950s, you really should. And I've got to do Cage for a future podcast. Uh, I might try to wait until I can get a female co-host and see if we can get a different viewpoint on that one, but I will do it. But anyway, not much, it's a kind of B picture for the studios at the time, and it's melodramatic and over the top. Janet Lee plays our next girlfriend who's a nightclub singer who re-hooks up with Stuart Whitman's character, Rojack, just as he kind of, sort of, throws his wife off a penthouse balcony uh, her father gets involved played by Lloyd Nolan and a whole bunch of criminals as well because Rojek is going after a big mafia boss and um, shit doesn't end well it's got a really nice last line the last line is a punch in the guts and spoken by Janet Lee, and it really does work well but it's a little too strident a little too over the top and a little too soft in the sense of being a studio picture where it doesn't have the language and, and maybe the um, violence done quite the way it would have been had it been made about a decade later. Nonetheless, I kind of enjoyed it. Like Stuart Whitman as an actor, Janet Lee definitely brings her A-game to it, and Eleanor Parker was always good in everything she did. The third movie I watched is I rewatched The Big Combo with Cornell Wilde, Richard Conti, Brian Donnelly, and um, Lee Van Cleef and Earl Holyman as Fante and Mingo. The Gay Gangsters. Um, yeah, it still works out well. John Alton's fantastic black and white cinematography. Conti as the villain is terrific. Cornell Wilde is staunch as the hero. Um, it's, it's a gutsy little 1950s film noir. And um, it's in the public domain too. I've got a Blu-ray of it. It's the best print of it I've ever seen on this Blu-ray I picked up. Thanks to the Patreon supporters, by the way. And I really um, enjoyed revisiting it. It's got a really cool jazz score by one of my favourite composers, David Raxon. And it was worth re-watching. It really does um, show us. It's kind of right at the sweet spot of film noir. Uh, the cinematography's right, the scripting's right, the acting's right, and the plot works really well. I'm not going to do any spoilers on it, but if you haven't seen The Big Combo go over to YouTube. There's a reasonable print of it on YouTube and you can watch it righteously if you have a problem with um, copyright infringement and I definitely enjoyed it. Then I went on a little bit of a Larry Cohen binge because Larry Cohen, there's a documentary about him called King Cohen that's just come out and he was interviewed on Gilbert Godfrey's Amazing Colossal Podcast, which I recommend. Um, And I watched two of them kind of sort of back to back, even though they don't appear on my letterboxed 2018 list back to back i did watch them together and the first one i watched was the stuff which is larry cohen's little comedy horror criticism of consumerism 
about a, a delicious dessert which kind of is a living organism that eats people back. Uh, it's got Michael Moriarty in it, uh, Andrea Marcovici. It has Paul Sorvino, who's just back in the news now for saying he wanted to kill Harvey Weinstein for killing Mira Sorvino, his daughter's career. So Paul Sorvino's in there. And a bunch of other people, Garrett Morris. And I really like it. It's very typical um, Larry Cohen stuff. But I've always liked Larry Cohen movies. I saw most of them live. Not live, but in the cinema. Particularly things like It's Alive, which is where I got the live thing. I watched It's Alive in the cinema. I watched God Told Me To in the cinema. I watched The Stuff in the cinema. And um, Cue the Winged Serpent as well. But the other movie I watched was God Told Me To. The one with um, Tony Lobianco in it and Richard Lynch which is kind of like Jesus as an alien and comes down to earth and he's hermaphroditic and uh, there are a whole bunch of people committing acts of mass murder and then just before they die usually they say God told me to and it's Larry Cohen at his kind of transgressive best. It really does work well. Um, I did download a copy, not quite legitimately, and then I kind of went, okay, well, I want a copy of this. So I'm buying a legit copy as well, which is on its way from eBay. And uh, I don't like it as much as I like things like The Stuff and Cue the Winged Serpent. I don't think Tony Lobianco has quite the Larry Cohen touch that somebody like Michael Moriarty does. And in The Stuff and in Cue the Winged Serpent, Moriarty is fantastic. But God Told Me To is a mindfuck, and I really enjoyed it at that level too. When the new copy comes in, I may re-watch it as well, and I will do it on a future podcast because um, Cohen's stuff is unlike anybody else's movies and all credit to him for that. And maybe I should do on Martian Drive-In. I should do the Alive trilogy. I'm not sure whether I've done It's Alive yet, but I may have. If I haven't, I will definitely do that sometime in 2018. Uh, Then I went and really retro and watched something that I would have seen on television in the 1960s. And it's Johnny Weissmuller in Jungle Moon Men which is really kind of um, a weird Johnny Weissmuller adaptation of H. Ryder Haggard's She. It's got um, a few other people in it. Gene Byron's in it playing uh, um, scientists who's researching stuff. They've actually got an actor, and I'll just look up her name while I pause the recording. Yep, yeah, it's Helene Stanton, who plays the kind of Aisha She kind of character in this. And she, as it turns out, is the mother of Dr. Drew from the Dr. Drew TV series, Drew Pinsky. Um, Helene Stanton is his mother. The reason I mentioned her as well is she's also the girlfriend who gets machine gunned in the big combo. So I kind of watched Jungle Moon Men based on watching the big combo. And um, yeah, that one, it's very much a programmer. It's, it's a B, it's, well, it's a C or D grade picture. Johnny Weissmuller was never a great actor great swimmer but never a great actor even his Tarzan was a little limited but nonetheless Jungle Moon Men with um, people like Billy Curtis playing African white pygmies um, an African white pygmy along with a lot of other um, people of short stature yeah, it's very much of its time and uh, it's got that production you know, production music in the background that we've heard in a dozen movies it's in black and white it's got um, a chimp called Simba in this case who's dick you see occasionally because it's a male chimp and um, yeah it's very much one of those kind of 
programmer things that turned up on Australian television in the 1960s with tremendous um, repetition. Then I uh, picked up a Blu-ray copy of Guardians, not Guardians of the Galaxy, but the Russian science fiction movie Guardians, which I spoke about on a Martian driving podcast a little while ago. I finally got a decent copy of that, uh, a legit copy as well. I tend to do that these days. I watch things illegally and then buy copies of them, if they're any good and if I enjoy them. And so I did that with Guardians. Uh, It doesn't hold up quite as well as it did on the first viewing. But I kind of like the fact of seeing a superhero movie from another culture. It really does work for me. And, um, yeah, I I like the special effects. I like the way they use the special effects. And I like the way they come at it, which is a common thing with a lot of Russian Fantastica. They come at it from a different angle than, say, an American or an English film would. And that always makes it just that little bit more interesting. Uh, I'm halfway through watching a really bad trauma movie called MILFs vs. Zombies, which has got a lot of nudity in it. It's got some very funny jokes about the movie industry in it. Uh, it with an in, it's also got an intro by, by um, Lloyd Kaufman. So um, it's, it's not very good at all, but then I was in the mood for something sleazy and trauma-like, and so I watched that. But uh, the only other things I've really watched are the two movies of which I will speak in this podcast in a few moments. And I will start after this break, where I play the trailer for it, with the 1962 movie starring Mig Miles and Grayson Hall, Satan in High Heels. I'm the kind of woman not hard to understand. I'm the one who cracks the whip and holds the upper hand. I'll beat you, mystery you, till you quiver and quail. Species is more deadly than the man. When you mess with me, or will around with the flame. When you find that you've been burned, you've only yourself to blame. I'll hurt you, desert you, if you ever should fail. The female of the species is more deadly. That's for Peppy, Cinderella. Mind your own business. How did you live to your present age? Oh, go soak your head, Paulette. Put that down, Stacy. You'll eat and drink what I tell you to until you lose five pounds in the places where. Now listen. You listen. No, no, no. Little birds in their nests agree. What I need is some fresh air. And a man. Larry isn't a man. Then I'll make him one. you some of the blurb from the back of the something weird video uh dvd release of satan in high heels because it's funny slut goddess stacy kane is a second-rate stripper in a third-rate carnival who wants more out of life 
So when she finds her junkie ex-husband lurking in a dressing room with a wad of money, Stacy promptly steals every cent, hops on a plane for New York, and auditions for a singing job in a nightclub run by a terse, wide-eyed lesbian named Peppy, who is soon trying to turn the tramp into a lady. Things quickly get complicated, however, when Stacy shacks up with the club's owner, Arnold Kenyon, while also having an affair with Arnold's son. When her ex-hubby once again pops up in her dressing room, this time with a knife instead of cash, Stacy sends him off to commit a little murder. So that's basically the premise of Satan in High Hills. It's in black and white. It's in Academy Ratio. Um, and it is uh, one of those movies that's going to play best if you watch it with a bunch of drunken friends. Because some movies are just like that. Now, the producer of the movie, a guy called Leonard Burton, was actually uh, a publisher of fetish magazines in New York, uh, including Exotique, Bizarre Life, High Heels, Unique World, and Corporal. Uh, now, Exotic was, uh, between 1955 and 1959, um, a femdom themed, with photograph and artwork, um, Basically, it's a kink magazine for the time. And this movie has a lot of kink in it. It stars Meg Miles, who was a model first in the 1950s and then went on to have a cabaret career. And oddly enough, because the man cave here has every bit of the 20th century in it somewhere, and again, the project to um, rationalise and cull and organise the man cave, is on our list of things to do for 2018. Sal's agreed to help me with it. I'm probably going to have to pay her a big premium to do that, but we're going to get this organised. took me 20 minutes to find this album, and there's only like two shelves of uh, LPs here in the Man Cave. So the, I've got her record, which is Meg Miles at the Living Room, where she sings songs like A Lot of Living to Do from Bye Bye Birdie, Everything I've Got from By Jupiter, uh, The Party's Over, Love Isn't Born, It's Made, I Fought Every Step of the Way, uh, Femininity and Issues, and it's got a picture of her whether wearing pretty much a feather boa, her hand to her chest, looking longingly up above the camera. And if I turn it over, the liner notes are by Johnny Carson, with whom she had an affair. She had an affair with a few people, to be honest with you. Um, and now, these days, she's still alive. She's still you know, sitting above the grass. And she runs a pigeon rescue business or a pigeon rescue mission in New York City. So that's kind of cool. That's a big arc from going from pin-up model, um, cabaret singer and star of a movie to rescuing pigeons in New York. But everybody's life has weird arcs. So, um, yeah, Meg Miles live at the living room. There's a um, – the liner notes by Johnny Carson are – funny but they're also fucking sexist as well i'm not going to read them out to you uh the record was made on the mercury label i'm not sure whether she made any other records i could probably find out let me just do a quick click and we'll see uh she let's see meg miles born 1934 so she's in her early 80s born billy jean jones in seattle and um no it doesn't actually talk about her uh discography in there but i'm sure there aren't that many copies of meg miles at the living room around and this one's got a, a big 
stamp on the top of it, and I probably picked this up at Lawson's in Sydney when a lot of radio stations in Sydney were getting rid of their vinyl. And it says, this record is a property of 2GB Recording Library. So 2GB was a radio station in Sydney, and still is, I believe. Uh, these days it runs to shock jocks and right-wing wankers, but they used to play music, and uh, this record came from their library. I really should give it a spin in the next um, week or two. I'm going to get the, uh, one of the more than one of the record players out because I've got some new vinyl. I picked up one piece of new vinyl. The first vinyl I bought new is, since I was in Perth uh, and Robin Penn over at Diabolic uh, Bookshop sold me a copy of Beyond the Valley of the Doll soundtrack. So I picked up a copy of Creedence Clearwater Revival's Cosmos Factory at the local post office where it was discounted to $15. Now, I've got an old copy of Cosmo's Factory as well, which I just dragged out when I was looking for the Meg Miles album. So vinyl is coming back, which is kind of cool because I've got a shit ton of it. And what I'm going to be doing is um, getting the record players in such a state, in such a place where I can actually play some vinyl, which is one of the reasons for cleaning up the man cave, apart from the fact that I'm sure I've got 15 copies of everything in here somewhere. Um... Yeah, I'm not going to paste a, post a photo on uh, social media of this place until it is cleaned up, after which I will do so. But it's fucking hard to walk in and out of the room at the moment. I'm going to get rid of a lot of boxes full of stuff. I may put out on um, social media if anybody locally wants some of this gear. But later in the year, when things cool down, we will definitely be making this place look like a proper podcasting studio instead of an explosion in an op shop. But anyway, on to the movie. Uh, I kind of like it. Meg Miles, at the time this movie was made, was in her late 20s. And without being too crude about it, she had a buxom figure. Um, nice dancer's legs, narrow waist, particularly with the corsets that they make her wear during the film, and a 40-inch bust. In fact, one of the quotes from Meg Miles, if you look it up on IMDb, is that no actress with a 40-inch bust ever won an Oscar which may have kind of spoken to her disillusion with Hollywood and the filmmaking process, though she was. Um, she did date a number of very famous men. Okay, here's the list. Um, Oleg Cassini, who was divorced from Jean Tini at the time. She was involved in, with Sammy Davis Jr., um, Bing Crosby, Francis Tone, and a number of other uh, famous guys including the Eddie Samuels, who was the accompanist for Eddie Fisher. And she also um, had a relationship with the actor George Montgomery. So it's one of those... that you get, you get a little kind of hinted backstory by looking into her romantic history. She was a good-looking woman with fairly large breasts. She could sing. She um, was a model. And she based on the sexism there was in Hollywood and in the entertainment industry at the time, had a number of relationships, which I'm not going to judge anybody for that kind of stuff. And I'm not even going to judge um, Stacey Kane, the slut goddess, it says here, from Satan in High Heels for most of it. Yes, she stole money from her ex-junkie ex-husband and went to New York to try to start a career. She had an affair with her guy and his son. Uh, it's only when she starts planning the murder of um, the father so that the son inherits and she can marry the son that she kind of drifts off 
a reasonable approach for a woman in the 19, early 1960s in the entertainment industry because women were treated particularly well, particularly in the kind of B and C grade careers someone like Meg Miles had. In um, the entertainment industry at the time, yeah, there were always predatory guys circling around. Harvey Weinstein would have felt right at home in the entertainment industry of the time. And because of that, a movie like Satan in High Heels plays a lot differently to modern sensibilities, particularly over the last year when things have changed enormously, than it did at the time. Uh, there's really... Uh, yeah, she, she's kind of her own motor in the sense that she suddenly she goes from being a stripper at a burlesque at a carnival. And the interesting thing is we get a bit of carnival footage there right at the start showing a real carnival. And we also see a number of scenes on the streets of New York City in the early 1960s, which always has that wonderful documentary feel to the modern audiences. But um, she suddenly decides when she gets that chance at the $900, to go and try to be at the top end of the entertainment industry straight away. She's got a good singing voice, she can dance, she's sexy, but for some reason she was stuck in the mud in this carnival in Podunk, Kansas, or wherever. And it's only when she gets hold of $900 her um, ex-partner had that she decides to actually move on from that place, which is kind of an odd motivation and an odd character arc, but you can't really think too deeply into this kind of a movie. Um, we do get another uh, kind of what they used to call sex sirens of the time in this one. Some, a woman called Sabrina, who had the kind of figure that Jane Mansfield had in The Girl Can't Help It. She um, really parlayed that into a career. Uh, she was born in Stockport, Cheshire in England. Uh, blonde, good-looking, and we see her in a cabaret uh, scene in this movie, which is plainly part of her cabaret act. And it's kind of cool to see that she she had a bit of charisma about it. She could hold a tune, but the main emphasis of her career was the fact that she was busty and sexy. In fact, she came to Australia and did some ads, oddly enough, for motor oil in the 1960s. Uh, her career tanked in the late 60s, unfortunately, and she died in some very dire circumstances in 2016 in uh, Toluca Lakes, California. So again, this movie is kind of a little bit of a sad arc in a way, which is kind of uncool. And it makes me kind of conflicted about recommending this movie. Yeah, it's got all the leather. In fact, the um, cabaret costume that they make for Stacy is a leather costume, and it's got a very big fetish aspect to it as well. And that's definitely um, coming from the producer in this case. But the movie itself shows that the, the message it sends to a modern audience is that to make it in show business, you either have to be really talented or totally ruthless. There's no middle ground there. And you also have to have man, a man, because men had all the economic cloud at the time, who you're willing to sleep with to further your career and even to get somewhere to live. And there's a character arc with Arnold, the guy she um, shacks up with, dumping his ex-partner during this movie because she's getting a little bit longer in the tooth than he likes, which is kind of sad and quite horrible. That character is played, called Felice, played by Nolia Chapman. 
and she plays it quite well too. She actually punches above her weight for this kind of a movie. And it's the only movie she made, which is a little bit odd. I'm trying to see if she's got any kind of bio at all. She doesn't even have a bio particularly in IMDb. But there's a kind of poignancy about her and Arnold's ruthlessness about her means that when he does end up almost being the victim of a murder which Stacy tries to get her ex-husband to commit, then we don't particularly care about him because he's an asshole anyway. He treats women badly and disposably. Uh, yeah, again, this isn't a movie that's particularly well written and it just hits certain character beats. But we don't really care about the fact that Stacy's trying to do this. I may play differently to an audience in the early 1960s and I'm willing to accept that possibility. But for modern audiences... We see Stacy slightly less pejoratively than I suspect audiences with the moral hang-ups they had in the early 1960s would. The other character I like in this movie is Peppy, who is played by Grayson Hall, who's got a great angular face. She really does look good and, and kind of sexy as uh, the lesbian Peppy. In this movie, she went on to do a long stint in the TV series Dark Shadows in the 1960s. But as Peppy, she's almost the kind of moral compass in this. She does run a nightclub. She is clearly tagged as lesbian, though we never see her in any kind of relationship. Nonetheless, uh, she's honest with everybody. She doesn't bullshit anybody. She's upfront and forthright with them. And Grayson Hall plays her really, really interesting. Uh, Grayson Hall herself wasn't a lesbian. She had a long-term marriage. In fact, her professional name, Grayson Hall, was thought up by her husband. So she um, had, a, had a, as I said, a great long career. And she gives a little class and a little verisimilitude to the role of Peppy in this particular movie. Even though she uh, doesn't run, doesn't own the um, nightclub, she runs it. And she is a professional businesswoman in that she knows what's necessary for the people she works with to look like and to do she wants people to put in the hard yards and the hard work to um achieve professional professionalism and to achieve what they're setting out to do and yeah and in a sense she's the one person in this movie that has any form of a moral compass which is kind of a bold move to do in a movie of this type at this time because having a character who's lesbian be the most honest person in the film wasn't something that occurred very often uh this came out in the same year that uh the remake of the children's hour came out with shirley mclean and audrey hepburn in it and that was monstrously nasty about even the possibility of lesbianism and yet in this small z grade exploitation film there's a, a more nuanced and more kind approach to a lesbian character, which I find really interesting and um, heartening in a sense. Of course, a lot of people who made this movie knew a lot of lesbians, knew a lot of gay people. In fact, the character played by Del Tenney, who's the accompanist in this, is flagged as gay. Uh, he doesn't get as nice a treatment as Peppy does. But cinema overall, like society overall, was often harsher on gay men than on gay women. And that shows up a lot in cinema. Uh, things like the first positive gay character I ever saw in a movie 
was Murray Melville in A Kind of Loving uh, with Rita Tushingham in the early 1960s, uh, where they form a platonic friendship as she's pregnant. Uh, and and Murray Melville's character was a revelation for me because I saw it maybe when I was in my teens and I'd never seen a positive portrayal of a gay character anywhere. And I was brought up in an incredibly homophobic environment. And I was homophobic myself because of that. But cinema took me on that first step to saving me. Uh, there also, but you, you contrast Murray Melville. Murray Melville was great in A Kind of Loving. And then you've got the character played in The L-Shaped Room, again in 1962, uh, played by uh, Cicely Courtnage, who plays an old, retired um, London musical character uh, who has a picture of a woman on her mantelpiece and tells Leslie Caron's character, Leslie Caron's a viewpoint character, that that was her long-term partner and, and she says, it takes all types, dear. And again, that, that was the first time I saw a positive lesbian uh, portrayal in a movie as well. So 1962 seemed to be a tipping point in a sense. Well, 1961, 1962, because in 1961, of course, we had um, Victim with Dirk Bogard, which talked about um, a successful barrister who's secretly gay and whose life and, and livelihood and... and um, his everything is threatened by the possibility of him being outed, including the possibility of a jail term. In fact, that was one of the movies that helped change the laws in the middle 1960s in England to decriminalise homosexuality. Didn't happen here in Australia until the 1970s because we don't try anything in Australia until it's failed elsewhere. And so the um, anti-gay legislation stayed on the books for crazy lengths of time. So even a movie like Satan in High Heels has a social context and by looking closely at some of the bits you can see the way that it's um, reflecting the society it came in and maybe reflecting both the prejudices and the acceptance that the filmmakers had for certain then taboo lifestyles. But Seen in High Hills isn't a great movie. It does have a great soundtrack, however. Mundell Lowe's soundtrack to um, Satan in High Hills is very a very cool jazz soundtrack and is well regarded by jazz soundtrack aficionados. In fact, Mundell Lowe died in December last year. And I've seen a couple of the soundtracks he did. And they are really good. He uh, didn't do many. He did Satan in High Hills. A Time for Killing in 1967. He did the soundtrack to Billy Jack in 1971. 72, he did Everything You Always Wanted to Know About Sex Were Afraid to Ask. And in 1977, he did a made-for-TV movie called Tarantulas, The Deadly Cargo. Uh, though he did work on a number of other TV series. He did some TV scores for The Wild Wild West, Love on a Rooftop, Hawaii Five-0, Starsky and Hutch, and a few other things. And he was a sideman on a couple of early 1960s Tony Bennett albums. He was a jazz guitarist. But his Satan in High Heels soundtrack is really good. It's got a good... It's very much of its time, but it's got that good thing where you get a bit of clarinet, you get a little bit of saxophone, you get a little bongos in there, and it just gives you that kind of sleazy wonderfulness you want from this kind of a movie soundtrack. So if there's a you know, most valuable player in this movie... 
it's definitely Mundell low for his soundtrack because it really does uh, deliver the goods at a level above most of the rest of the movie. But there's not too much else to say about this one. Uh, I did check on eBay, and the movie is available on the Something Weird Video um, DVD, and the price pay you want to pay for it is a little bit of a premium. It's somewhere around 20 bucks Australian. My copy I picked up at a place called Minotaur in Melbourne on Elizabeth Street. Minotaur is a science fiction and uh, fantasy collectibles and, and bookshop and all that kind of thing. It's usually priced pretty high compared to the prices you can get things elsewhere. But I know a lot of people who are very devoted to Minotaur. So I was walking through town one day. Uh, in fact, I was waiting for the radio gig. So I decided to kind of catch up for lunch. I think I had lunch with Morris. Brzezinski from Love That Album podcast and um, I was wandering down there and I just wandered through there and they had Satan on High Heels on special for like $15 so I went yeah I'll pick up a copy of that and so I did so I've got it uh, fairly cheaply but I don't know whether something weird video is still selling it I know the guy who ran something weird video died a couple of years ago let me see if their website's still up because if you're interested in this kind of movie, I want to kind of help you out and try to find it. Let's see, something weird video. And you're fascinated by me typing, aren't you? Uh, let's see. Uh, let's have a look here. Blah, blah, blah. Doesn't look like it's still active. Um, let me have a look. No, uh, I've got a news item from... Uh, it sells off the rare image DVD stock. Something weird video sells off rare image DVD stock. So they're selling off um, DVD collections and all of their stuff. Uh, let's see. Great deal of something weird cults. Blah, blah, blah. Mug Rainey was the guy who ran something weird video. Sorry, I'm just kind of seeing whether they've got the website still up and running, whether it's still selling stuff. And it looks like um, it might be. Let me just double check. Yeah, you can still buy things from them, so you may well be able. To, let me see if they they've got it here. Yeah, it looks like they're still selling it, which is kind of cool. The fifteen dollars US. Um, it does have some other things in it as well. The disc, because something weird video, we're always good at adding extra stuff in. There's some trailers for Confessions of a Bad Girl, Girl with an Itch, The Love Cult, um, Satan's Bed, Satan's Playthings, The Soul Snatcher, and The Unsatisfied. There are a couple of really bad short subjects attached to it, Satan and the Virgin and Latex She-Devils, which are really bad prints of those things. And there's a short film called The Wild and the Naked, which is kind of a very amateurish nudie film as well. Like I said, uh, Something Weird Video always added a bit extra into their DVD releases, which is kind of fun. But anyway, I'm going to take a break now. When we get back, we're going to talk about a very different movie from a very different part of the world. The Swedish film known as, they called her One Eye, and most often, and in the original Swedish version, known as Thriller, A Cruel Picture, starring Christina Lindbergh. When cruelty knows no bounds, when evil knows no limits, revenge strikes with its most frightening power. They called her one eye, then ran for their lives. We've got a peck of trouble. Frigga killed one of her regular clients yesterday. 
and I'm betting she's out to get the three of us. They defiled her beauty. They robbed her of speech. They brutalized her body. And when they had finished, she used what was left to repay every blow with her own terrible kind of revenge. Find out where she's getting her stuff and set her up. Then get rid of her. Your most fearful nightmares, the most cruel sights you have ever seen, cannot match the shock of this motion picture experience. first saw Thriller, a cruel picture, in the 1970s in Sydney. I think I may have seen it in a small cinema in King's Cross up on Darlinghurst Road. I was a callow youth at the time, and I had seen Christina Lindbergh in previous films. Uh, let me see, Made in Sweden probably being the one that I saw. And so I decided, oh, here's another Christina Lindbergh movie, and she's attractive and uh, cute and I will go and see it. And it's a very different movie from Made in Sweden. In fact, it's a very different movie than pretty much any other film. If you've seen Kill Bill, and Tarantino's a big fan of They Call Her One Eye, um, L Driver, the character in that one, played by Daryl Hannah, is a direct reference to Frigga, the character played by Christina Lindbergh in Thriller, A Cruel Picture. The movie, I'll give you the plot synopsis from IMD because it's not very long and it does give us what we need to know. A quiet girl, Madeline, uh, who gets called Frigga when, in, as her career moves on, is sexually assaulted as a child and the trauma has made her mute. One day when she's older, she accepts a ride from a man, Tony, played by Heinz Hoff, who kidnaps her, makes her a heroin addict and then becomes her pimp. To hide the fact that she was kidnapped, the pimp writes hateful letters to her parents who become so distraught they commit suicide. At one point she is stabbed in the eye for refusing a client. Madeline then begins saving money to purchase a car to escape and she takes lessons in driving, shooting and martial arts in order to take revenge. That's pretty much it. This movie is a pared down exploitation movie of its time. It came out around the same time as Charles Bronson's Death Wish. But Death Wish is a Disney movie compared to this one. It really is traumatic. We get the scene at the start of the film where she's sexually assaulted by an old tramp as a child, and it's handled kind of tastefully. We do get a point-of-view shot from the child's point of view of the old man assaulting her, but we don't actually see anything of the child getting assaulted, apart from her being hugged and nursed by her mother. Um after the occurrence in the park. So that part's handled kind of tastefully, but again, even taking it to that level is incredibly transgressive from a modern filmmaking point of view. But they did handle it gently. So Madeline grows up on her parents' farm and the local neighbours gossip about her because you know she's mute and she doesn't go anywhere and lives outside the farm, she misses the bus for a psychologist appointment and gets a lift from this guy, Tony, who's got a cool car, who talks to her, doesn't seem to mind that she doesn't talk, and it's only 
when he takes her out to dinner that uh, she hands him a note saying that she's mute because he's the kind of guy who's very much involved in himself. He drugs her, gets keeps her sedated while he gets her addicted to high levels of heroin and then tells her that she's got to earn a living to get her fixed. And at the first um, client that he brings to her, she scratches his eyes almost out. Uh, she puts enormous scratch marks down his face. And so to punish her, Tony stabs her in the eye. Now, this is the bit where it gets really transgressive because when making the film, the film director, Bo Arne Vibernius, found a woman's corpse, a suicide uh, victim, in a morgue, and they used that stabbing, that poor corpse in the eye, for the eye-stabbing scene in this movie. This is why the movie was banned in Sweden. People say it was the first movie to ever be banned in Sweden, but it wasn't. There was a movie in 1912 that was banned in Sweden. But I didn't know until I did the research after I saw that scene. I thought, that's really good. That's almost up to Le Chien Andalou level of eye gouging being done well but no it was an actual human corpse being stabbed i didn't know that at the time and it makes me a little sick to think about it so just be aware of that if you see it the other bit that wasn't in the movie when i first saw it in the 1970s were some hardcore sex inserts when um frigga as she becomes known is servicing her clients now it was yeah we got body doubles in that scene it wasn't christina Lindbergh doing hardcore sex scenes and the scenes are basically the old famous you know two stilo two brillo pads fighting over a hot dog kind of viewpoints but it kind of works um yeah the hardcore insert scenes work to show the kind of anonymous just pumping away that happens uh to a sex worker in this kind of situation i don't think it was entirely necessary to show the hardcore sex inserts which were done by a famous um sex act couple in sweden at the time called romeo and julia funnily enough but the inserts kind of do work because they do show the mechanical emotionless contextless sex that um madeline has to undergo as a part of being Tony's um, prostitute. She does make friends with another um, one of the sex workers there, a woman who's been there somewhat longer than her called Sally, played by Solveig Anderson. And at one stage, she kind of finds out what her ultimate fate's going to be as a member of Tony's stable, if she doesn't kind of totally submit to him. And she does do the sex work in order to get her fixed but she has a plan and she makes a plan to um learn how to drive learn how to shoot guns and learn martial arts as well and you see some training montages of uh madeline learning these things and the people teaching her seem to be genuine martial artists and genuine military guys and a genuine stunt driver to um get her to the point where she's going to take her revenge now this movie it's all in the detail because Christina Lindbergh's character doesn't speak. We don't hear her making her plans or discussing them with anybody. She plays it like, and, and rightly so, as somebody who's in shock and who really um, doesn't share her emotions with others because she's been sexually abused her entire life. 
except for that hiatus with her parents on the farm. So even though her character isn't a demonstrative one and she doesn't react physically or seemingly emotionally to anything that's happening to her, the fact that she goes out and forthrightly makes these plans and trains and really does take steps to rescue herself, knowing that nobody else is going to rescue her, it really does make this movie something unusual because we there's an almost documentary feel to the stuff because we don't have that emotional context. We don't have the clever dialogue. We don't have ranting and raving by the victim as she um, tries to plead with anybody. She doesn't do that. She reacts by scratching the face of her first client and then submits when her eyes jabbed out. She makes friends with uh, the other prostitute, Sally, and she carefully saves the money that she's given. And I'm not quite sure why she's given money at all, but she's given money. She saves it in order to plan for a number of things. First one is to get a different supply of heroin for herself and then to buy um, a shotgun with a rifle attached. So it's three-barrel shotgun, two barrels being the shotgun, third one being a rifle to train how to use it to get a car and know how to drive a car and to practice martial arts. So she's taking lessons to rescue herself. And um, the director, Bo Arne Verberni, said he wanted to make the most commercial exploitation movie ever made because he lost money on an earlier film. And I actually looked up the earlier film that Bo Arne Verberni did, which is a kind of an interesting choice to go from that film to this film. Because the he only made a few films as a director. He made three films as a director. The first one's called Her Murray Tuffigard Frederick. And the IMDB pricey for this movie he made, you've got to remember, this is before Thriller, A Cruel Picture. Uh, a young girl called Marie accidentally breaks her bars. Because of this, she runs away from home. On the run, she meets a boy called Frederick, a donkey and a kangaroo. I shit you not, that's what it is. So they they went from this, which is a kind of kids' film. Uh, there's no re- user reviews on IMDb for it. It goes from that, which is it's kind of innocent kids' film. It runs an hour thirty six minutes, little family film in nineteen sixty nine. He made it, and the next film he makes, there's um, sex, eye gouging, underage rape, and a whole bunch of other things. So yeah, he was obviously a guy who wanted to make films, but Maybe his moral compass was a bit off in the way he made them. But um, Thriller, a, a Cruel Picture, is a one-off. It's very much unlike anything else. It's before Ms. 45 and all those other female Death Wish kind of movies. And the fact that the protagonist is so undemonstrative with her emotions and is unable to speak. Um, Ms. 45, of course, takes that in an American context as well with the character um, in that one being played by somebody who can't speak either. But in this one, it's a real um, brutal movie. The murders, there's a lot of kind of gut shots with shotguns. There's a really weird death for Tony at the end of the film, which I'm not going to spoil for you, um, out in the countryside. There's some car chases where she takes out a couple of cops um, she doesn't kill them, but she beats them unconscious using her martial arts skill and um, steals a cop car in order to get where she needs to be. She 
um, sets booby traps for Tony out in the countryside. Uh, it, it's she's a, a human terminator. She's somebody who's got no trust in any other human being, and has made steps to ensure that these people can't hurt her or anybody else in the future. Uh, that's that's the movie. It's a stripped down ugly film it's filmed in the autumn in sweden and um it gives you a really nice sense of place as well but uh, this movie i I don't know why i I don't remember it better maybe i I was shocked seeing it at the time when i was expecting this exploitation movie and what it is is a kind of brutal ugly and at times amazingly realistic portrayal of sex slavery and somebody who rescues themselves from that. This this movie is a fucking head trip, I tell you. Um, I, I got this one on eBay. As I said, it's a Synapse film DVD from a few years ago. Special features are um, it's the uncensored version, uh, optional English subtitles, stills gallery, TV trailers, outtakes. There's an alternative uh, harbour fight sequence in there. And some unused, uh, some photos detailing unused fight sequences in the film. So yeah, it's um. And now I'm a fan of exploitation films from way back. Uh, the first films that I really saw as an adult were mostly exploitation films, but this one is transgressive for the way it was made, for the things it does in the film, and for the uncompromising and but fucked up vision of the director. Uh, he really did give us a one-off movie that doesn't skimp on the brutality and really the the words are starting to fail me with this one because the the fact that they used a, a real young woman's corpse for an eye gouging scene which is something that i don't know any civilized country would allow you to do now is mind-boggling to me Um, i've seen a lot of movies and i've seen some movies and videos where genuine human death occurs but this one hits me in a weird place for that uh the after all it's only a movie mutilating a corpse to make a movie is something that's really really fucked up but nonetheless if you're interested in exploitation films i believe there's both versions on the synapse films um disc so you can watch the version without the hardcore sex inserts in it and maybe turn aside when the eye gouging scene starts it's it's done partly as point of view so it'll telegraph itself pretty well there but yeah um christina lingard is great in this one because not showing the emotion and keeping her face blank uh, is an incredibly good directorial and acting choice because it, it makes you, you can project your own emotions and how you would feel in that circumstance into the character and she it gives her an added unpredictability but anyway that's, there's not much else to say about this one apart from if you having heard this if you still want to see it definitely do it it is out there and available and it's but just be aware of the the bits that are transgressive in the film but uh, as a pure exploitation film, it's a, at a place of its own. Anyway, that's about it this time around. 
Again, it's that time to knock, knock, knock that naughty clock that says it's time to go. Thank you for listening. Thank you for sticking with me in 2018. Thank you to the Patreon subscribers who have been through some ructions with the Patreon uh, subscription process. And thank you to the extra people who came on board just so I had to review that fucking Star Wars movie. Uh, I'll be back next week with another Martian Drive-In podcast. I've got a few ideas for that one that are going to be fun. And I'll be back in two weeks with another Paleo Cinema podcast. As I said, in the future, I'll be getting um, people like my friend Bruce Creevy on board. I'm also getting uh, Dave McLemore, who's going to Skype in from Texas to do Gunfight at the OK Corral and Hour of the Gun with me, which is going to be the best. I'm going to have a fucking fun time with those two movies. And um, I'm, as I said, I'm, I'm trying to make sure I keep regular to the schedule and really give everything i've got to the podcast i really enjoy doing this i want to get more people involved uh if you're involved if you're interested in being involved and coming on board there are a few criteria you've got to kind of follow first one is you've got to be able to talk about movies kind of well you've got to do the homework you've got to see the movies and you've got to have fun with it but uh if you are interested just drop me a line of feedback paleo i do However, I want to end the podcast because I do have a bit of feedback. I got an email from Dave Brandt. Uh, thanks, Dave. He says, Hi, Terry. Personally, I'm not much for Star Wars, but I'd love to hear an episode celebrating the holiday season. The only rule is it pisses off the Catholic Church. Of the mainstream movies, one of my favourite is Dogma. The B movies are more interesting. One of my favourites is Orgy of the Dead. You remember, a young couple is killed in an auto accident and goes to heaven. In Edward's perverted mind, heaven turns out to be a 60 strip joint presided over by Chris Well. It's perfect casting. God is played by a phony, blowhard con man, a charlatan, a quack. Just think of it. God's night job is at a strip club. And the deeply subversive message is disguised by extreme ineptitude. That's why B-movies are such fun. The Catholic Church would be deeply offended if only they were clever enough to figure it out. Thanks, Dave. Okay, Dave, it's going on the list. Uh, I do have a copy of Orgy of the Dead, and yeah, it's a fucked up and inept movie, but I think it may well be something that I can add to the list, which is kind of going to be cool. Let me just see if there's anything else in the feedback. Nope, that's it. I still haven't got the Patreon credits done yet for the new subscribers, and I deeply apologize for that. I will get it done sometime before I die. Uh, but nonetheless, here are the credits that we have to recognize and acknowledge the truly wonderful human beings who throw coins at this podcast and help me keep things going. Uh, I did get the tranche of money this month for the podcast, and uh, because I've been buying the movies myself, I spent it on a drone, which I'm going to be posting photos of various things using my drone up on social media i may even use it uh, on the youtube page as a way of um putting some b-roll behind the um intros to the paleo cinema youtube page i'm going to do more youtube videos over the next year and i want to get something kind of a swooping shot with a drone as a part of that so i've got a nice inexpensive little drone that does a nice job and I'll be using that. So anyway, look after yourselves. Watch some good movies. Watch some bad movies. Take care of yourselves. I know there's some friends I've got out there that are doing it tough at the moment. And I'm sure that there are people listening who are the same. Um, I'll reach out and, and get help if you need it. I know it's hard to do that 
when you're suffering, but things don't get better. You, you can't pull yourself out of the pit all the time by yourself. So get some help, get some love. More people care about you than you think. So take care of yourselves. I'll be back very soon. And I'm going to enjoy the fuck out of the movies I watch in 2018. So I'll see you guys later. Here are the credits. And after that, I may slip a tune onto the podcast as well. And in fact, it will be a Meg Miles tune. So I found one and I'm going to slip it onto the end of the podcast. Take care and I'll talk to you soon. And here are the credits. Thank you to Tom, the focus puller, Sarah, the special effects technician, Ian, the caterer, Grant, the technicolor consultant, Claire, the script doctor, Gary, the prop master, Morris, our music director, Jan, our dialect coach, Armin, our key grip, Matt, our rattlesnake wrangler, Elaine, our scientific advisor, Julia, our casting director, Chris, the camera operator, Christopher the Gaffer, Miss Jane the Wardrobe Mistress, Tansy our Foley Artist, Alyssa our Location Scout, Mark our Set and Unit Director, Paul our Special Effects Makeup, Special Makeup Effects Director, Tammy our Donut Wrangler, Tim our New York Unit Director, Rabbi Steve our Spiritual Advisor, Steve, our monster effects guy. Dylan, our goat wrangler. Eric, our set security lead. Richard H, the set photographer. Mark D, extra. David L, the extra. Richard C, our transportation co-captain. Carrie L, our Tasmanian consultant. And Carrie C, our accountant. We also have... Sally, our continuity girl, and of course the other Sally who is always helpful and encouraging and wonderful. So thank you very much to all of the Patreon subscribers. You too can be a Patreon subscriber by going to patreon.com slash paleocinema and donating as little as a dollar per month. Dreaming, dreamed about the H-bomb Well, the bomb, it went off and I was caught I was the only gal on the ground Well, there were 13 men and only one gal in town There was a 13 men and only one gal around And as funny as it may be the one and only gal in town was me With those 13 men and me The only gal in town There were two men in the morning Seeing that I was well fed And believe you me One sweetened my tea While the other one buttered my bread Two men gave me my money Two men bought me my clothes And another sweet thing gave me a diamond ring About 40 carats, I suppose Well, a 13 man and only one guy in town There was a 13 man and me The only gal in town Their best cause is sure we're a lively pack. Well, a 13 men and only one gal in town. 